Did you think B2B was challenging? How about dealing with governments? Who should you contact? What is the best way to reach out to people in power in different countries? How to sign deals or test potential solutions quickly? Working in B2G, business to governments, can be extremely challenging. But Jakob Bossar has done it successfully with governments across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. He founded Bossac in 2015 with a mission to supply clean drinking water to the people who don't have it today. And Bossac does it in a sustainable way. The company's current ambition is to bring clean drinking water to 1.5 million people across the globe. Since 2017, Bossac went from 2 to 14 employees. It's active on three continents. They provide drinking water to 40,000 people and they have three patents. Working and selling to governments requires a wide set of skills and a personal touch, especially when it comes to a national security asset such as water. In this episode, Jakob shares his six do's and don'ts when talking to people in power and how to grow a B2G and to sell to governments. Among these advice, you will learn how crucial it is to know the key decision makers in the organization, how to do your research, how to not forget the human touch, how to be patient, the importance of what's in it for me, and how to listen actively. Are you ready to dive in this very insightful episode together? Let's go. Welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company and do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership, and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. Hi, Jacob. I'm really happy to welcome you today. How are you? Great, busy, but in a good vibe, so good energy. It's always good to be busy. It means you're on a good path. Tell me a little bit, can you present your mission? You are the CEO of BOSAC. So I'll start with the start. I'm actually an engineer, chemical engineer, but when I graduated, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Antarctica because the Belgian government has a research station on Antarctica. And I had the opportunity to go there as a water expedition engineer. I didn't know anything about water, but I definitely wanted to go to Antarctica. So I went there. They hired me for I don't know what reason. And when I got to the station, they told me, this is your installation. Make sure we have drinking water and we can reuse the water that we used at the station. And by the way, the only energy you have is solar energy. And I was like, oh, shit, how am I going to do this? Because I don't know anything about water. But miraculously, after three weeks, I managed to start the system and I went back five times. Why is that important? Because in the meanwhile, I worked in the chemical industry, but I was obviously triggered by water uh, because it was, it was my responsibility at the station. And when you read up about water, then you soon found out that water is really a big, big challenge worldwide. There are about 2.2 billion people worldwide who do not have regular access to clean drinking water. Uh, so they have access or it's, and then it's contaminated or they have to walk for a long while. So there's a lot of people who don't have the luxury as we have here in the West. And then I said, okay, I have to be part of the solution. And that's actually where it started. And the mission and the vision of Bosak is, is to supply drinking water for the people 
who don't have it today and to do it in a sustainable way, meaning on the long term, high quality with good technology and not the low quality solutions. So really in, in a sustainable, but the sustainability for us is not only the ecological side, it's also the economical side and also the social aspect side of solutions. So that's why I see sustainable for me is a bigger word than it's mostly uh, how say that, perceived by people. So that's a bit vision and mission. That's a fantastic mission. And how far are you with it now? So uh, how big is your team? What kind of revenue numbers can you share with us? For revenue, I can't share that because that's uh, a bit too sensitive, especially in the stage where we are now at the capital rates. But we were in 2017 when we started, mid-2017, Peter and me, the two of us. And now we're 14 and we're looking for four more people. So that makes 18. We're active in three continents. We are yeah, supplying to several governments, to industry. So we're actually on a good way up, let's say. And we will provide uh, by the end of next year already about 40,000 people drinking water. And now we are negotiating contracts to get that to 1.5, 1.6 million people. So that's what we're in right now. So it's a, we are uh, negotiating two uh, huge contracts to our side, obviously. Uh, and one country is providing 1 million people, and another country is between half a million and 700,000 people uh, without drinking water. So, yeah, big ambitions, but also uh, living up to that, let's say. One of the particular like criteria from your organization, I guess, is that's what I'm happy to discuss today is that one contract for you, usually, like, that you're going, you're really scaling up for, for, for every contract. And especially like the contract of that size will make you really like scale up. So uh, I'd be happy to talk about that in a second. But before we talk about that, if you think about everything you've accomplished up until now, what has been the hardest? Well, first of all, I don't really think we have accomplished already that much. I think from the outside, people think that, which is great. Uh, people really like our company. We win prizes. It's good for raising for funding. Bunch <laughs> of stuff. Exactly, which is really great, but um, there's still so much to do. But I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is the team, I think. I managed to assemble a team which is very connected. The people connect with each other, which makes that one plus one is three, it's not two. And I think that's the absolute foundation of any mission or vision like the, like the one we have to accomplish that. You have to have a team that works with, the, with each other, takes responsibility, uh, and doesn't stop before the goal is reached, because we're still in that startup mode. And I... Some people think stars is very romantic. It's nothing romantic about it because you work your ass off and you hope for the best, basically. And I think that's my biggest accomplishment because, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that, that I don't have as a CEO and I always say hire smarter and that's what we always did. So the people in the company are all smarter than I am, which is great, obviously, because they do the things I can't do. And I think with that mindset and our thin commandments, because we have the thin commandments, which is like a value framework of our company. It's the first document that Peter and me ever made. So it's uh, who we are as a company. How is it called? Guidance. It's the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's uh, a link to the Bible. Of course, we're not a Christian uh, organization or something, but it's a Ten Commandment. It's also in Bikki in, in, in our office. And it, it's a value framework of who we are. For example, the first was think and act sustainably. Um, and we want people that come and work at Bosak to think and act sustainably. I do understand that so that's a challenge because, for example, I fly for selling the project. Is that sustainable? Of course, not sustainable. But if I can reach 20,000 people with providing drinking water, then it's fine, you know? So, but we try, for example, the company cars that we give to people, we only give it when it's needed because in Belgium, company cars are fiscally super interesting for companies, but we only give a car when it's needed. It's only electrical already from uh, last year. 
or a hybrid for people who live in apartments in cities where there are no uh, charging opportunities. So diesel cars or petrol cars are not, not here anymore. If I, for example, go to one city and only have one meeting in one city, I take a train. As if we try to be, but we do not want to be the tree huggers, if you understand what I mean, being sustainable for being sustainable for being sustainable. You understand? We noble people. And I, and I believe if every company would do what we do, just a 10, 15 cent better, you would have a different world without losing too much comfort in your personal life. Because I think it's always a balance. If, for example, we work for Tomorrowland and Tomorrowland is a festival about, uh, it's, everything is about experience. Experience is the best experience, the greatest, the best music in the best atmosphere. But still we save water there without harming the comfort of the people coming to the festival. That's something that we also live in the company. We want to be sustainable, but not at the cost of other things. For example, the, the products we make are more sustainable, but they're also cheaper. So there's a no-brainer to use these products instead of other products that are less sustainable. You have to combine these. I don't believe in sustainability for the sake of sustainability. Sustainability is a verb, basically. It's something that you have to work on, and it's something that you get by working on it. And I think it's important as young companies work in the sustainable the fintech space that we understand that companies, any company, needs to have, see the profits, can be short-term, can be long-term, of uh, buying into these products, but also from an economic point of view, not only the societal point of view, because that's obvious. I think the societal point of view, it's obvious, but not in the pockets of, of shareholders, whatever. And that's where I think our company does a great job because we provide products that you immediately feel in the pocket, but from a societal point of view, it's a huge advantage. Because if you provide drink water in a, in a village in Syria now, one of our biggest clients now, then you provide clean drink water also for the schools there. So they don't have to shut down the schools in dry season because the teachers don't come to the school because they come from the capital and they don't want to be in the school if there's no water. So if you provide water, then from a style point of view, you have more education. So you have better development. So you have so everything is related to that. And I think that's a societal aspect. And for our product, it's very grateful and easy to achieve that. But still, it's a big focus point on the financial part of the solution. So if they would supply water with another system than ours, it's probably going to be more expensive. So is that your USP on, on, your, on your... Yes. The lowest total cost of ownership. So everything, because we have three patents already, we are developing more patents. So we're really water technology company rather than a water utility or water supply company. So technology is really important, but the technology we develop is to get to that goal of the lowest total cost of ownership. It's an economic measure. The societal benefits comes from providing drinking water, not necessarily from the product itself. Of course, we work with solar pads and so no CO2 footprint and all that, but that's not really a sales argument. It's something that I think any company should make as the most sustainable product as possible, basically. You said something very interesting. I guess that's one of the most challenging things to put a team that is really clicking together. What's the advice you have, or basically when you hire, when you recruit someone, what are the steps you have? What is the general trick you think you have that allows you to maximize the chances that you are hiring people that will click together? I think two measures for us that's crucial. First of all, hire smarter. Don't hire people, especially because I work in corporates. And then you see that boss hires somebody for his team who is a bit less smart than he is. Like he's scared for his own position, basically. Or he takes others from team that they can't be too good because it would reflect on him that he's not good. I always did the opposite. When I worked in corporate, I made sure that my team, all the best of the company were there because I didn't have to do anything. They were so good at everything <laughs> for me as a project manager, did everything for me. But at the end, the project was success. And I said, oh, the project manager, good job. You know, so it reflected on me in a positive way. 
And I believe that the same in a company. If I hire people for a job which I can do, I can do better, then it's a bad hire. And it sounds logical, but it's not logical at all. I've seen so many bad hires because people are scared or I don't know. It's an ego thing. I don't know. And that's something that we really, really focus on. If we hire, it has to be better than we already have for that specific job that we have in the company. And the specific job in the company at this stage is quite broad, let's say, because we're not a, a company with, with 500 engineers and every engineer has a specific topic. So that's the first thing. So hire smarter. And the second one is we hire 80% of personality, 20% on skills. So the person is a lot more important to us than the skills you have, because I believe if the mindset is right, you can learn the skills. But it's not because you have the right skills, you can learn the mindset. It's, a mindset is something you have as a person, right? Uh, for example, the purpose-drivenness of a person that works at Bosak is super crucial. If you don't want to work for a company that wants to make a, a difference in the world and provide a positive thing for the world, then you will not fit in in the team. And how do you evaluate this personality? That's just by interview. So there's always an interview with somebody from HR. Then depending on where the people will do the job, somebody from that team uh, will talk to them. And it's really a personal conversation because I don't believe we do assessments, but that's for the skills. Because sometimes we doubt, is that skill, would they have? Sometimes we doubt that. And then we do uh, an assessment, but that's just uh, a try to objectivize the person as such in his skills. But the personal touch is more in interviews that we have. We do also like the blue, green, yellow, red analysis. That's more to give us a direction. Are we right with what we feel if we do that conversation? Because I believe you do, people do business with people. Uh, people don't do business with our product. They do business with me who sells the product. So that connection between me and the person that buys it is a lot more important than the connection with the person and the technology that we sell. That's maybe different for technological people. But technological people will not buy it. They will support the buyer in his decision. Ultimately, but the buyer is in general not the person who understands technology in depth in general. So the personal relationship, for example, we sell to governments. My personal relationship with the people in power is super important in selling the product. And they don't, they don't know what the product is about. They don't understand technology. I don't even have to start explaining them. The only thing I have to explain, you have a river, you have people, we take that water, put it in our system, and you get drinking water. And that's what they understand. And that's more than enough. They don't need to know uh, how we do the maintenance. They don't need to know how we provide the energy. It's solar panels, it's good for them. Because I'm definitely sure if I just put one solar panel on the system, I work with a generator in the back, they still would buy it because they see the solar panel. So it's more a perception that you sell. People buy from persons, right? Exactly. People do business with people. And at the same of all levels of a business, even technicians with each other, because I see when my engineers talk to each other, it's a different conversation, obviously, than I would talk to somebody else, but they understand each other. And because they understand each other, they produce something. If they would not have that human connection, they would not be able to produce what they're producing. So I really believe in the people itself. That's why I'm saying 80% is mindset, 20% is skills, because the skills is a must. And that's not the main driver for a job. For example, I have engineers, Peter and me, we're both chemical engineers. We know everything, well, it's not true, but we know supposedly everything about the chemical processes. And we both start up a water company. But our mindset was, we're going to make it better. We're going to pr uh, make products that uh, are not existing and do a better job than the products already existing. And we did. And that's because the mindset, not because of we had the enormous skill of water. No, we didn't. We did it. We had zero skills on water. So I really believe in the personality and in the person itself, the human side of a person to produce and to create a better world, basically, what we're trying to do. 
I agree 100%. I think that's very crucial because your bottleneck when you hire is not the skills that usually most of the exactly. people have, but it's basically the personality. It's the mindset, yeah, absolutely. So you send me a list of do's and don'ts. Thank you very much for that. So great advice is that I'm really looking forward to, to talk about with you about how to grow a B2G and sell to governments. B2G standing for uh, business to governments. And exactly, the first yeah. one is about account mapping. Can you explain to me a bit what is basically your first advice? So I just explained to you how we target a country. There are three reasons for going to a country. First of all is the need. But 95% of countries worldwide are in need of drinking water. Even in Belgium, there are 40,000 homes not connected to drinking water grid. In Germany, 700,000 homes. So even here, there's a need for solutions for decentralized drinking water supply. So that's the first thing. Need, but it's almost always there. The second one is how are you going to finance the project? In the West, it's obvious governments are able To pay it in the countries where we active, Africa, Latin America, Asia, we need to go with multilateral development banks, financing agencies, other types of financing possibilities. So you need to have that secured. If you have that secured, if you can finance your project through a loan with very beneficial rates for the country, then it's a must. Without that, for example, I once went to Liberia. Uh, there's nobody who wants to finance Liberia, so we can't do a project. And the third one is the network. And that's, again, the human thing. The network is super important for selling a product because we need to make sure that the people that buy from us, that we know them. And in general, governments, it's the minister who decides whether a project will work out, yes or no. But a minister is an important contact point, but it's actually not always them who decides. They are the final decision taker, but it's not always them who decides. And that's why I'm saying account mapping is for super important because we need to know Who is surrounding that minister? Who is influencing the decision of the minister? Who is the real power behind that we don't see behind the decisions that a minister takes? And that's account mapping. So we're looking for these people in his surrounding that advise him, that are his directors of the administration, that are in the field, that work for him. As I said, for example, the secretaries of ministers, super important. Uh, if I go to Suriname, or client is the minister of natural resources. His secretary always brings chocolate. <laughs> she knows that when I go there, but she loves the chocolate. It's these small things. And last time I was there and she told me, ah, your project was in the budget. But that's crucial information for me to know. And you come from Belgium. You can bring good chocolate. Exactly. <laughs> It helps. It definitely helps. So that's the account. Because even a secretary, even I say it's one of the most important people, actually. They know everything about the administration, how it goes, who does what. And for example, if I need to know, hey, can you help me with somebody who knows something about this specific topic, say, oh, yeah, you have to talk with that person. And if I have a good relationship with the secretary, I get so many things done. This is super, super interesting. I love that. Tomorrow, you have to start a new country. You know, you have to go to a country mm -hmm. you have never been there before. How do you break down the process? How do you, like, from there to identifying, from the beginning to identifying the three top persons you need to convince or influence? So, yeah, exactly. So we identify almost always first the Ministry of Water Resources, of natural resources, of sanitation. So the minister that's responsible for providing drinkwater to the people. So that's the first thing we do. And then we're going to check with our own embassy or with business partners or with other people that are already active in the country. So that know the country already from a side. And then we start talking to these people. Hopefully you have someone already in your network exactly. with that. So you look But on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, embassies. For example, I have a very, very good relationship with a lot of diplomats here in Belgium. And these diplomats travel and they know people. They know people everywhere. 
And then you talk with it. Do you know somebody in that car? Oh, no, but that guy was an ambassador for four years there. Maybe you could talk to them. So I talked to them. Hey, do you know? And they're always willing to help. The diplomats in Belgium, I think it's in a lot of countries, fair to say that they're really good people and they know what they're doing. Not all of them, obviously, but you have that everywhere. But we, we have very good diplomats, I believe, and they really bring me in contact with people. And sometimes nothing, but sometimes you have, you contact 100 person and the 101 person is the one you need. And before you know, you're sitting at the director's table of an administration, and before you know, you're having a meeting with the minister. In Ghana as well, they told me another company, a Belgian company is active in Ghana. They said, oh, we worked with that person. And I said, can you get in contact? Yeah, sure, no problem. I went there the first time and had a meeting with the Ministry of Water and Sanitation. So that's how it works. And I've never been to Ghana. I don't know the country, but I immediately had the meeting, and I told them, yeah, we want to do a project here. We want to provide one million of Ghanaian with drinking water. Oh, perfect. Sit, set it up. Great, we have political support and we go. We don't need the minister anymore, but she knows we're there. I connect her through LinkedIn. I send her a message. She answered me. Uh, great, good job. Keep it up. That's it. And that's how it works. And sometimes we tend to think that ministers or people in power are not humans. They are very human. And they also like the recognition. They also like, especially politicians, they also like to be in the process of, not, not all of them. You have really power play people. It's a lot harder to get into. Uh, you have very blue, I'm red, I'm a red person. And for example, the Minister of Finance in general is blue persons. Difficult for me, super difficult. What's the different colors again? What do you mean by blue here? Blue is really, really rational based on numbers, very factual, very, yeah, and yeah, exactly. And red, all over, red and yellow, very positive, very uh, emotional, very, so that not always. I can hear you, well. I can hear I do that. my best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you know what I mean? But the thing is that if I, I don't need that, the minister, I need to see him. He knows who I am. But then maybe people around him also read. And then I connect with these people. I say, oh, what do you think? Oh, maybe you should do it like this or you push like that. And before you know, you create an ecosystem of people around the decision takers. That's super important because, for example, also in a lot of governments, ministers drop they, or they reshuffled or they get out. But if you don't do the account mapping, then everything is gone if you only have count with, with the minister. I have contact with a lot of ministers, but I know that they could drop away. So that company minister is not actually the crucial part. It's important to a certain extent. But the most important one, who is the head of, of the department? Who are the people that stay there even if the minister is gone? So I can get reintroduced. That is something that is critical in your case, but it, it can be applied very easily to any kind of B2B business as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you put all your efforts to try to convince one person and let's say even you convince that person and if you keep in touch only with that person, the problem is that person might leave the company at some point and then you start over from scratch. Or, exactly. or that person might ha like not really see the connections or the value of using you right now. Exactly. But if you convince three people and if you keep them in the loop all the time, when you have some kind of like a, a down point you might have another person which is actually really happy with your job and that's easy to keep you in the loop. And also exactly. when you talk to three persons, it's also way easier to understand when something is not going the right direction. If you have to talk one person, Absolutely. that person might have a hidden agenda. You have no idea about it. But if you talk to three people, usually, and you have a good connection, at some point you always learn about things. It's a good uh, mm -hmm. learning and advice for all people mm -hmm. in sales, basically. Yeah, exactly. I think it, for example, now we're doing a project for Total. Total is a big customer, Total Energies. It's uh, one of the biggest oil companies in the world. My engineers are in contact with the engineers at Total. And then I asked one of our, our salespeople who sold the project, 
can you get me in contact? Because it's from the consultancy department, so we didn't have anything to do with them. Can you give me the contact experience? And I write them an email. So the engineers talk to the engineers, and I talk to the senior management. And then you go actually to, that's the idea. So the team management, they like me, hopefully. Got a good chat. Oh, the guy, they know what they're doing. And the engineers say, oh, the boss engineer really good. I have a good connection. And then the engineer talks to his management. Oh, we had a connection with Bosak. Oh, the people from Bosak, how were they? I had a good connection. Oh, I also had a good connection. So it creates trust. You know, sales is trust. So if you can create that trust, then you sell your project. It's not a very new uh, concept or so, but I think it's, it's the essence of it. And I, I think the account mapping for us is really to make sure that we know. Because in Seattle, it was really difficult. So we signed a contract with the former government and the new government. I didn't have any connection with the new government. Everything was gone. It was a disaster. But there was one director at the administration that state. I gave her a call and I uh, said, hey, can you connect me with this, this minister and the vice president? She said, you have to send that person. She sent me a contact, the new secretary of the new minister. And she set up a, uh, a meeting with the minister of finance, the minister of natural resources and the vice president. And before I knew I was sitting at their desk. So that's how fast it can go. Just, and that's a result of account mapping, nothing else. Very good. Let's move to the second advice you have, which is do your research. So I don't know how much that is linked to what you just said, but can you iterate on that? I think everybody has to do it when you sell things. You need to know your industry. You need to know the people. Account mapping is part of doing your research, but also, and that's specifically uh, here that I want to go a little bit deeper into is the country itself. If we target the country as the marketing department to do a study on the country, and we get an A4 with all information of the country. What cultures are, what beliefs are there? What languages do they speak? What is the historical background? Who was the colonial power before? Who are the parties? How are they divided? Is it a democracy? Is it not a democracy? How is the constitutional concept uh, set up? So all these aspects is something that we need to know. Because if I go, for example, we have a partner for a project we're doing in Suriname, and they made a presentation and they stand it without my knowledge to one of our partners in Suriname. And there is a disputed area with Guyana and Suriname. And the map they showed was without disputed area. But if you do that and you send it to government official, your project is dumb. It's completely dumb. For example, in Morocco, if you say the Western Sahara is not part of Morocco, your project is dumb. Because politically, it's so a heavy thing that you, it's details, eh? it's super details, but they don't want that. So they think you don't know a country, what are you doing here? And these kind of things, that's something you do by doing your research. You got to know with who are you talking, who are the people, um, the cultural finesse of the countries where you're doing business are important. I was talking yesterday at an event of Deloitte where we were uh, in the finals. A guy, he said, I did business in Japan. And when I go to Japan, the higher I go in the hierarchy, the earlier I have to be in a meeting. So if I talk to middle management, five minutes before the meeting is fine. If I talk to his boss, 10 minutes before the meeting is, is fine. But if you talk to general manager, you have to be at 20 minutes before the meeting is planned. It's a form of respect. And if you don't understand it and you're like us, two minutes before the meeting, you're in time, <laughs> obviously in time. But it doesn't work like that. Uh, and the tsunami is the same. In tsunami, I cannot be in a Dutch way going very straight, although it's a Dutch colonial uh, thing, but they like it more slow. They like more the Flemish way because we are more, well, not me, but in general, <laughs> Flemish people are more, more calm and they tend to do work better with that. And that's cultural things. And these, that's why I'm saying doing research is not only reading a book, it's important to read about it, but also be open for new things, observant about how do they do business? How do they interact with each other? 
what is important, ask people that already have a lot of experience there. So doing your research is a lot more than just uh, reading up a bit. And you have this sheet then of a paper file or a Notion file or a Google form where you basically gather all this information for all the people from your team working so that they're, exactly. they're aware of exactly. that. It's also the need of your project. That's the same. What do they need? And sometimes what they need is not what they need. But you need to understand how they think before you can propose because we got decentralized brick water supply is for some countries very difficult to grasp. They don't want that. They want just a big drink water plant and piping it to the ground to supply to everybody in the country. But that's, you can't do that for rural areas. It's way too expensive. It's, and also water degrades over long distances. So that's not the right approach. But you need to know if that is their need, they think it's their need, then you can anticipate on that. Obviously, you have to do research, but it's a lot more than just reading a book and think that you know. Or, or know what the flag is about. But even that is some people go to Quentin, they don't know how the flag looks. You need to know who's the president, you need to know how the constitution, you need to know it's with two chambers. If you work in the government, you need to know how the government works. I think it's logical, but some people don't have any clue. How will you sell? How will you talk with politicians if you don't understand how they, they work? So I think it's super important that, that these things are, are, are known by people. Also by people who are operationally only there. For example, talking about a president, for example, in Rwanda, is a no-go. You don't talk about the president, especially not negative, <laughs> in the country, in some other countries as well. So, But you need to know that some people are very naive and they say whatever they, they want. And before you know, you have a secret service on your thing. Because you also have to understand that's also something that I didn't realize when I started a company. Drinking water is a public good, but it's also a strategic, super important resource of a country. So interfering with the national security of a country if you provide drink water to people. You gotta imagine in Sudan, we're gonna now provide about 20% of the inland of Sudan with, with our drink water instead. 20%. But the inland, so uh, uh, we would wanna do the whole inland. So we're now talking about the PPP, public private partnership, provide the complete inland of Sudan. But imagine, so Sudan, only 5% of the people live in the inland, but they vote for 21% of the parliament. Imagine that a week before election, I just push a button in Belgium and all systems go down. So they don't have drinking water anymore. A week before the election. So you understand that's, that's the enormity of the consequence if you do that. So we can also be prepared for that. That's also doing your research. How does it work? How do we protect ourselves from that? How do, but who do we talk? How do we make sure that we, that's also why we set up PPPs to don't have that political liability basically affecting the company. PPPs? So there's a lot of things. Yeah, public-private partnerships. Yeah, that's something that's very common in the, in working with governments. Because so what happens at PPPs in general for water is a public-private partnership where you set up a business, a water business, and the private partner provides technology and, and everything that's needed to provide from a practical point of view of water. And the public party provides you a monopoly because in drink water is generally a monopoly that you get, provide you with licenses, provide you with some political backing to provide drink water to the people. So, and that's something I really, really underestimate when I started a company. I said, yeah, everybody needs water. So it's not, what is the difficulty about it? Yeah, well, politics, that's the difficulty about it. That, that brings me to your third advice, which is related to human touch. Mm. Can you explain me a bit more about that one? Well, I think we touched upon it already. I, I always say people do business, uh, From people business to with people. people, not with products. Exactly. And that's the truth. If, if you work with people... Uh, in government, they also have children. They also want to go on holiday. That's something what amazes me. If I look at the world, everybody wants the same. From the, the smallest African village to the Amazon, to North America, to China, everybody wants a safe environment for their family, wants to have a job, food on the table, travel once in a while, have a safe environment for their kids. They can grow up. They, they go to school. Everybody wants the same. And so we make so much quarrel with each other. 
And that's something I, I don't even understand why we do that. It, 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 it's, we do it. I don't know why, but that's it's the same with the minister. The minister is also, a, is also probably a father or a mother. They also have children. They also have that same protective feeling about their children. And if you can connect with them, that's what I'm also trying to look for in the contact with people, not only for sales. Of course, for me, it's more sales, but also if you're doctor engineers, they try to get the human connection. It's so much nicer to work with people uh, and gives people trust and gives people comfort to work with. Uh, if, we, if you understand what we need from each other and the human touch is a lot more important than we, that we might think. You can't put everything in Excel sheet. That's not possible. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to this full episode or to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. How do you start a conversation the first time you meet someone? I'm pretty sure this is something that me... Personally, in sales, I always struggle a bit, but you seem to be, because you seem to be so good at that, do you have any advice on how you usually, or if maybe you do that naturally, but if you try to break it down, do you actually have some kind of advice of how to start the conversation with someone you've never met or how you do the chit-chat before starting the meeting? Well, what I do, for example, with ministers, really important people, I do research on the internet. That's part of the, of the former. So does he have children? That's, for example, I bring chocolate always when I go to Sinam to the ministers. I need to know if, if, if he has a partner. So uh, as a secretary, does he, have a, does he have a wife? And then she laughed. Eh, no, no, but he has a partner. So you know that he's, yeah, once in a while he has a different partner. So that's something you know then. Uh, but if you would have family, then she would say, no, no, he has uh, uh, a wife and two kids. Uh, so it's part of the, the doing the research. In other circumstances, especially when I sell in Belgium, when I do sales conversation in Belgium, It's more a feeling thing because, for example, blue person tend to talk about that a lot less than red or yellow persons. And that's something that you feel. But with a blue person, I'm 100% sure I can really talk about numbers. I'm an engineer, so I understand numbers. So I can talk about numbers. And that gives that connection. It feels, gives comfort to them because I'm talking with knowledge and he wants only to talk with persons with knowledge. And that's where you try to connect. But that's a feeling. That's something that you really have to feel when you're sitting with a person in front of you You try to read, but the thing is, I, it may be a, a nice anecdote because when, when I was a student, I worked in the nightlife as a bouncer. And as a bouncer, I had to read people to make sure they would not create trouble. For me, it was a super, a super good school I did for four years when I was, because I paid my studies myself. That pays well. Huh? It was normally. Yeah, it pays very well. I could really teach myself how to read people, how to, to make sure that I make the right decisions. And sometimes I test people. For example, when they came to the door, I said, ah, oh, sorry, I can't let you in tonight. The way they reacted gave me the insight on, should I let them in? Yes or no? And so sometimes you did that to someone and then because they looked sad and they didn't react bad, you told them like, oh, it's okay, you can go in? Yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, for this time, you can get in, but I don't want to hear you tonight. <laughs> Yeah, of course, you talk from an authoritarian position, obviously. But I, sometimes you, people say, oh, you stupid asshole, I'm going to kick your ass. Then you know you made the right decision. And sometimes you don't know, and then you test people. Okay, in a sales uh, conversation, it's a little bit more difficult, but I think I learned the finesse of how to trigger people to know what they want. It sometimes doesn't work either. For example, last week I had a very good example of what didn't work. It was a guy who was super, super skeptical about what we did. Why do you come here? Why do you want a meeting? 
Uh, I told I told the guy that connected us that I don't need somebody for water. So it's constant, constant. In the end, he was at ease, and in the end, he asked me to propose something to him. But it was so so difficult for me to get that right. I really had there was a, a long time that was challenged so much to get him on the right track with me, basically. And yeah, I sometimes it just doesn't go smoothly. <laughs> Just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, they, we are all humans. It's the same thing as well. For the same reason uh, that sometimes you have, you can sell to people not because of the product, because of the person. Sometimes you will end up not selling to a person because there is no connection, and that happens. That, that brings me to the fourth advice you send, which is be patient. The government sales process is very long and frustrating. So, what's your advice about being patient? It's a difficult one. If it's, uh, I think from. Um entrepreneurial point when you're an entrepreneur you're impatient it's part of being an entrepreneur it's why you keep on pushing 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 you want to go further you, you want to grow faster you want to have bigger impact everything faster 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 because you want to reach your goal faster basically and it, when you reach your goal you set a new goal to go again to that goal it's part of being an entrepreneur i think so it's difficult to cope with that it's one of the biggest struggles basically i have as an entrepreneur is that patience but the good thing is the water sector is so big that you can bet on different horses, basically. And that's what we try to do. So if does, if something gets stuck, we have another project that might go forward. And the more you have a variation in what you do, without losing focus, super important, because focus is, is uh, the most important part, I think, for setting up a successful business, I have to focus. Without losing focus, to busy with different things. But for example, for me, I have Bosak, which is my main, uh, my main passion, my main driver, my main yeah, goal basically in life, except for my family, obviously. I also do, I also have a business in real estate. It gets my mind off. I also make sure that when I lose patience in Bosak, I have something else that I can, uh, can work with. And that generally is B2B, it goes faster. So I'm always busy and it makes me feel that I never have to wait. By setting up different goals with different yeah. activities, I've saw that with some founders I've worked with as well that are just losing patience with investors, for example, and getting like completely cranky. That allows you to say to yeah. be a bit more patient and to say, you know, you know, I can wait uh, in order to wait these couple of days for that or that project to finalize or to get an answer. I, I will actually focus mm -hmm. on my other projects. Yeah, but it's difficult. The fifth advice he sent was, "What's in it for me?" So I don't know if it's an advice or a, a question. Would you mind explaining a bit what you mean by this? Well. For me, it's logical. Eh? When you do a project, everybody wins. What's in it for me, that's not only from my point of view, it's also from the customer's point of view, from all stakeholders' point of view. What's in it for me? Make sure everybody's served in your project. If you do that, you always have successful projects. If everybody wins, there's nobody who's going to say, I don't want it. No, because you're going to win as well. Here you said, for example, dare to take a step back and try to see things from his or her perspective. Is this also as well... Do you have any process to do that with your team or with anything? Or it's just, uh, again, something that you grasp on the go during meetings? Yeah, I think it's more part of the culture that we make sure that we help each other, that we uh, are there for each other, that if I help you, you will help me in the future. That's more from an internal uh, perspective. From the customer's perspective is to make sure that you take a step back and don't always push your own solution. Because the thing is, I feel that if you want to sell something and you make it their idea, that they need to buy that from you, then you're selling it because they see the win. But if you explain them the win and they don't see it as a win, you're not going to sell. 
So you need to make it, for example, that's why I'm saying, when we sell our products to governments, we don't sell our products. I sell elections because that's what's in it for him. And that's how you come to your last advice, basically, which is listen in that case. Actually, so listen yeah. first, I agree. Have you read the book from Chris Voss? I don't have time to read. Everybody doesn't have to read. And I think it's a bad thing, but I don't read. That goes along with what you just said. Is at the end of the day, let the people come up with the solutions. I so believe that too. And whenever now, when you negotiate, also it's something, when you want to try to sell, you introduce something. But if you ask a lot of questions first, you get to know what the people really want. And then you basically can sell the one or the two points that these people are interested in too. Because you have a hundred different things you can sell about your products. And you read about this one or two things. And it's the same thing for negotiating a price or anything. If you make a suggestion, they are way less likely to accept it than if you just say, that's the whole thing about the book. It's like, I'd love to do that. If people ask you for a discount or something, oh, I'd love to do that, but how are we supposed to do that? And just by letting the uh -huh. people come up with the ideas, they will tell you, but oh, what about this? What about that? It's connected. I think, for example, it's something very Flemish. People want partnerships, but as soon as the partnership is formed and there's a business opportunity, they want to take as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, but that's a, a typical thing. And I just, it's something I understand. For example, Suriname, the second project we sold, I asked another company, a Belgian company, do you want to join? Sure. We do it. We have less turnover. He has turnover. But the second project, he will take us into the process. So, and that's where you win. Again, they win. We win, and in the end, everybody wins. Because if I take everything for myself, I will not do another project with him. But if I also give him the wins, basically, the, the earnings from the project, then he will trust me for a second project, and third, fourth, fifth, who knows? But that's about long-term decisions as well. That's about yeah, being able absolutely. to see the long-term and not only the short-term uh, outcome absolutely. in that case. But that's, I think what's in it for me, the more you can spread that feeling from a short notice the long-term notice, the more successful you'll be also in the future, in the immediate future, but also in the, the long-term future. I agree. Thank you very much for all these advice. We could talk, I think, <laughs> during hours about sales and listening to people. I like that too. <laughs> but let's go with the question that usually ask my guests at the end. What is the best advice you've ever been given as an entrepreneur? I think it's one of the best advice I've got is a guy who started up with us, Bosak, but he left because he had a different vision. That guy told me, you have to say no to be able to grow. And it's a super interesting uh, thought. And it's actually true because saying no means you focus. The water effect is so big and they come with 100,000 of things that we could do. But we have to say no to 99% of it to keep that focus on 1%. And that's when you grow. That's when you make impact. And for me, I really have to think about that a lot. Sometimes it comes with me to quit. You want to do that? I say, oh, it looks very interesting. And then I say, no, no, no. That's not the goal of the company. That's not the focus of the company. So no, we won't do it. And that allows me to put time in the things that really matter for the company, to get that focus right. And I still think about that a lot. How do you know when to say no? You basically look at the focus of the company. So I guess you have a clear focus yeah. of the company and anything that comes to innovation that is not related to that focus, if I exactly. that comes out, it's a no, at least on the moment when you decide to innovate something. Exactly. But it's, it's For example, they asked me quite a lot to go and, and do public speaking about Antarctica because it's a nice topic to talk to. I have to say no. And now, for example, I said two to three times a year maximum, and I raised my price. Said they pay me, and I raise my price now. So they don't get asked too much. So if they want to pay, it's fine. It's fine. So I don't have to go either. Yeah, saying no, yeah, saying no is important. I was going to ask you, I always ask, what is uh, the book you would recommend entrepreneurs to read? <laughs> you said you don't read a lot, so maybe you have a, you know, a podcast or a blog or an influencer or a YouTube channel that you follow. 
that you could share? I don't. I don't know why. I don't listen to podcasts. I, I'd rather listen to music when I'm in my car. With all the entrepreneurs I speak, sometimes they like podcasts or something. They find a way to keep on learning. So how do you keep on learning? I read on the internet a lot. For example, because uh, I'm very interested in decentralized financing, because also the blockchain technology, because we want to make people that they're able to pay for water in the villages without having a bank account. So the off banking system, decentralized finance, super interesting. That's what I want to know. So I'm reading about that. He sent me a book uh, in a PDF format and on my cell phone when I have some plans, I try to read it. So these kind of things I do. I watch uh, YouTube videos. I ask people. The most knowledge I get is from other entrepreneurs. How do you do that? How do you tackle this? So just by interacting with people, that's also where I feel most comfortable with. That's, I think, where I have my most learnings from. And also from the people around me that say, you should do it like this or they have a different view, for example, or a CMO or a marketing officer. Okay, so you are asking a lot of different people for advice. That's also a really good way to do. Can you tell us one thing about you I wouldn't be able to find out online? Besides maybe the fact that you are actually, or you were actually a bouncer when you were a student. But is there something else on your exactly. mind? Exactly. You won't find it. <laughs> I got a golf trophy. I'm just checking. Nobody you knows. What? You can't find that. A golf, a golf trophy. trophy. I never played golf. I just played it once at my job and I got a trophy. It's something nobody knows. So you're going to prize. Okay. <laughs> very good one. Thank you very much for your time today. Wishing you all the best with Bozak. Have a great day. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring and you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry, and your startup stage. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.